This is Gulf Coast Life. I'm Mike Canary. Thanks for joining us. Beginning tomorrow morning, WGCU will begin airing a new essay series called Reflections of a Colored Girl by Dr. Martha Beretta. Dr. Beretta is an author and lecturer who has written extensively about social issues related to race, gender, class, power, and culture. She has written numerous books, the most recent being The Promise of Whiteness, Its Past, and Its Future, which was published last year. Earlier in her life, she worked as a speech pathologist. Dr. Beretta was born in southwest Florida in 1945, but spent the first 10 years of her life in a small town in western Virginia. Her family then moved back to Punta Gorda, where they have deep roots. Today, she is director of the Blanchard House Museum of African American History and Culture in Punta Gorda, which is still unfortunately closed due to damage caused by Hurricane Ian. Dr. Beretta came into our studio yesterday to sit down with me to talk about her new essay series, how it came about, and what she hopes to pass along along to listeners with it. Let's hear that conversation now. Dr. Beretta, welcome back to Gulf Coast Life. Well, Mike, it is such a pleasure always to come and to speak with you. So we're going to get to your latest project, this essay series called Reflections of a Colored Girl. But first, let's start with some biography. Where and when were you born? All right. I was born in Arcadia, Florida, 1945, May 2nd. We did not have a, a hospital in Ponta Gorda, so I was born in uh, Arcadia. And um, my father was in the military. He uh, got out, you know, the war was over in, in um, 45. But he was from Virginia, from uh, Marion, Virginia, in the, in the mountains. So he and my mom, as soon as I was born, they moved back up to Virginia. So we lived uh, what we call the holler, way down in the holler in uh, Virginia, for those years, my earliest years. And they were very interesting years because um, our neighbors across the streets were white. People went in and out of everybody's house. I never heard of anybody going to a back door. They sat together, and the men, of course, on the weekend would sit in my uncle's man's cave. And, of course, they drank in Virginia. They were drinking moonshine. And so, uh, but my mother had a congenital heart defect. And she, the, the winters, the altitude was very difficult for her. So at age 10, um, we had to move back to Florida because of my mother's health. So back to Punta Gorda. Back to Punta Gorda, yes. Describe what Punta Gorda was like in 1955 and in the, in the early part of your life into your teenage years. Okay, um, Ponta Gorda, I have to say, when I was growing up, was very different from surrounding towns and from towns that I even read or heard about. I uh, even do a presentation called The Little Town That Unity Built, because in 1885, Florida had some of the roughest, toughest Jim Crow laws. I mean, like if uh, black and white were seen, a color and a white were seen together too much, your neighbor could turn you in and get a, get a money for it. But anyway, I grew up there, even in 55, my mother and I were baptized in Sacred Heart Catholic Church, a predominantly white church. There was no special seating for us. My mother even became president of the uh, Women's Association. So even in Ponte Gorda, even though there were Jim Crow laws, in terms of Jim Crow customs, things were different. I never had any fear living in Ponte Gorda. We, of course, had colored and white signs. I'm not saying everything was perfect, you know, going to the back of restaurants, all that kind of thing. But I never had fear. 
because back in 1887, four African Americans signed the incorporation of Ponta Gorda. So Ponta Gorda was helped to be created by black men. And one of, you know, one of the most important men in uh, Ponta Gorda was my great uncle, Dan Smith. He held the very first church service. 18-year-old kid builds one of those little chicky things, has a service. Mike, everybody went. They didn't sit differently. They just were one group. And they met like that until they all got their the money to build their own churches. So people did move in later, and things changed. We did get a clan. But I have to say, even though there were Jim Crow laws, in terms of customs, there were violations. Now, one of the customs was in Jim Crow was that white men did not work for black men. Now, you know that, and they certainly were not paid the same. Well, guess what? Guess who was one of the major employers in Ponta Gorda? George Brown, and he paid equal pay for equal work. So Ponta Gorda, I have to say, in its early days, was a model for what we could be in this country. I'm very proud of the fact that I grew up in Ponta Gorda. You went away to college in Michigan? Yeah. Do I have that right? Western Michigan. I uh, went into one of those fields, I guess, that was kind of weird for a person, a colored girl, because they thought at that time that, you know, colored people couldn't speak properly. And I went into a field speech and hearing path where you corrected speech. But I went and studied under Dr. Charles Van Riper, who was the, the father of speech pathology. And so I went to Western, which was really amazing because when I left Ponta Gorda, it was a fishing village of 3,000 people. Western Michigan had 15,000 students. So I talk about, you know, culture shock. But, uh, yeah, I went away to Western. How many degrees do you have? I, oh, I, four, I believe. I have a, a, a bachelor's in speech and hearing, master's in speech and hearing path. I have a specialist in uh, student personnel services, and my Ph.D. is in counselor education, and I've done some postgraduate work. Gotcha. So was there a big difference culturally in Michigan from Punta Gorda? You've painted a picture of Punta Gorda being a fairly harmonious town, but it's, it's still the South. You know, can you just reflect on the differences you felt moving all the way up north during, <laughs> you know, that would have been what, you know, 60, early 60s? Well, Mike, I, I am writing an essay on this on the, the little inn in Negro and the big inn in Negro that W.E. Boyce mentioned. Um, going north, I have to say that I was really expecting, you know, not to see, and I didn't see color and white signs. You know, when I'm going north to Michigan, I'm becoming a Negro, right, with the big N. Um, the first night, my, my mom and my aunt took me up there. We were in Terry Hall, uh, Indiana, and we had to sleep in the car because no hotel would rent to us. Mm. And so there were incidents even in Michigan. And when I talked to African-Americans who li- lived in Michigan, there was still there was still a discrimination, but it was not the kind that I had experienced in the South. So, in fact, when, when students were coming to South to march, you know, to sit in with restaurants and to, to take the buses, the first protest I went on was a march in Kalamazoo for open housing for the Negro students so they could rent apartments. So it was different uh, yeah. than 
And I have to tell you, I don't remember. Uh, of course, now I wasn't there. Now I left, you know, in '62 to go to school, but I don't remember ever hearing anything about there being anything about sitting in a restaurant in Ponta Gorda. I think I came home my sophomore years year, and I was dating a young man who had lived in D.C. And he wanted to go bowling, and he said, well, let's try it out. Let's see if we can bowl. We went to the bowling alley. Nobody said anything to us. So, you hmm. um, You mentioned W.E.B. Du Bois. Mm-hmm. Um, can you explain what's meant by the veil? Because okay. that kind of is an undercurrent of, of this, yes. this series and your work. Yes. The veil, according to him, are these assumptions and misconceptions and myths about the Negro. And because of these misconceptions, because of this, we are not permitted, at least whites are not permitted to know the truth about who Negroes are. Who are these people? And so one of the things that I have hoped to do in terms of this process is to tell the truth. Uh, 2023 somehow has been mentioned as the year of truth by lifting the veil by telling a new narrative of who we are. And I think I am an example because of my experiences and the lessons I learned of a true Negro. I am an example of who we really are. I'm not a stereotype. And it's not just me, but this veil, until there is a new narrative, Mike, until we uncover and we look at all of the myths and stereotypes we will not have good relationships in this country. So we must lift the veil and see who these people really are, that for almost 400 years there have been myths and stereotypes. Before we talk about how Reflections of a Colored Girl came to be, let's Mm -hmm. listen to one. Um, And just to remind listeners, these are going to be airing on Wednesdays starting tomorrow and will air every Wednesday for several months at least. Mm -hmm. I've heard the first five, but let's Mm -hmm. listen to the first one. In my life, I have found myself as a colored, a Negro, a black, an African-American, and a person of color. This is my reflection as a colored girl. I am not tragically colored. There is no great sorrow dammed up in my soul nor lurking behind my eyes. I do not mind at all. I do not belong to the sobbing school of Negrohood who hold that nature somehow has given them a low-down, dirty deal, and those feelings are all hurt about it. Even in the helter-skelter skirmish that is my life, I have seen that the world is to the strong, regardless of a little pigmentation, more or less. No, I do not weep at the world. I am too busy sharpening my oyster knife. That is from Zora Neale Hurston, one of my favorite authors. And it is her philosophy about race, being colored, to which I adhere. There have been many books written about the horrors of being colored, especially during the Jim Crow era. However, much less has been written about the agency of the colored to not only survive, but to thrive despite the barriers. My Reflections of a Colored Girl are meant to offer a different narrative. One that, yes, describes the segregation and discrimination that this colored girl experienced, but more importantly, 
one that describes the beliefs, the values, and the actions of my family, school, and community that inspired, challenged, and expected me to be the human being that I became. Like Zora, I am not tragically colored. And I am not alone. During Jim Crow, the color developed exceptional institutions of learning, created great works of art and music, and established over 200 vibrant colored business districts like Tulsa and Durham. It was during Jim Crow that the mythology of white superiority and black inferiority were solidly refuted. We colored used our spiritual power to understand our African traditions and to rise above the psychological needs of white America to dehumanize and control us. We are not and have never been the stereotypical image in the conditioned white mind. As you hear my stories or read the essays, you might be surprised that they reflect the life of one who grew up colored. This is my life story from birth to now my late 70s. These are my reflections as a colored girl. What's it like to hear your voice? <laughs> it's, it's, it's amazing. It really is. I, I um, almost have a chill with some of the, the words that, that came through, the, the feelings that came through. Um, how did it come about? How did this series come about? You've written books. I've talked to you on the show about books you've written. You've done all sorts of things. But how did this series come to be? <laughs> Mike, there are basically three elements. One, the pandemic, 2020. All right. I hit my 75th birthday, which is supposed to be the special occasion where you go out and, you know, all this, everything's supposed to be wonderful. I'm stuck in the house. I can't even... Have friends over who are afraid. Your birthday was like two May months after lockdown, right? <laughs> yes, yes. So I can't do anything. And so first of all, I'm there. And I had started. I had started uh, a time for change. But then George Floyd was killed. And that that whole episode, this racial reckoning, I actually, the publisher, I said, hold off. I, I need to think about this more and do something more. And so after the George Floyd thing, I, I did finish uh, A Time for Change, which was published in 21, but I wrote The Promise of Whiteness because of all of that that had happened with George Floyd. I said, we need to look psychologically. What, what is this all about? And that was published. They published it quickly in 2022. Okay. So now ah, I can breathe, all right? I even uh, finished a fictional book, My Brother's Keeper, I was working on. Lo and behold, here comes Ian. And I am, house is very much damaged, have to live in a hotel, in a hotel room. And from the work I used to do, I used to travel a lot. Hotel rooms, empty, I'm an introvert, and so I'd have to put all of my emotional energy out doing the workshops, get back to my hotel room, and I could reflect and I could meditate. And so it's doing this, actually after Ian, I'm in the hotel room, and I'm thinking, hmm, Start reflecting on my life. That's that's what happened. And because I had done adult development, I pulled out Eric Erickson. And it, well, Eric said, you know, 65 and above, which I had already passed, is that you either uh, look at your life and you it's, you know, you your task and what you achieve is either ego integrity or despair. So, Michael looked at my life and I said, I looked at me, looked at my life, and I said, 
Martha, you've had a good life. I have achieved the things I wanted to achieve. And so I had to go back to reflect. And as I go back, I look at what made it possible for me to come where I am. Because over 20-some years, and I remember I was a color girl. I was, you know, the discrimination, the this, the that. But the lessons that I learned were so remarkable. The belief system, the values that I learned were what made it possible for me to be here today. Mine's very interesting. Just this morning, I was thinking about the preparation for coming here. I wrote a book called Pathway to Change back in, it had to be the late 90s, and it was published like, not till 2007. But I wrote it for uh, inmates, people who were um, you're incarcerated, and it was called Pathway to Change. Now, I wanted it to be called Pathway to Personal Empowerment, but they wouldn't go for that power <laughs> thing. So anyway, but this morning I was thinking about it, Mike, and it's so strange. In that book, I described three types of power, being power, doing power, and connecting power. Mike, that all came from my lessons as a colored girl. I thought about that this morning, and I said, oh, my God, those were the lessons that I learned as a color girl. My being for my, my faith, you know, spirituality, and my hope for my ancestors, the stories I heard, and the whole thing of connectedness and giving back. And, you know, I, all of the things that I had learned, I have to say, and just today I, I was able to pass on to this particular group of people. And I'm so pleased with that. You talk about uh, growing up in Punta Gorda, how close-knit it was, and how it was kind of like the whole it takes a village, you know, <laughs> metaphor. Um, you know, you learned all those lessons because you had people around you who were trying to impart those lessons, right? Yes. Uh, my culture is one of collectivism, oneness. Uh, there's a saying, I am because we are, Okay. It's not about individualism. Now, when I was growing up, it's about that collectivism. When when we went to away to my age group went away to college, you got your degree. Your degree wasn't just for you; it was for you to give back to use that. Now, growing up in a African American color community, when I grew up, every adult was responsible. They were responsible for encouraging you for nurturing you and disciplining you. And even today, it is so interesting that if I'm in a store or something and I see especially an older, well, I'm older now, African-American, that thing that we were supposed to always speak and acknowledge, those lessons are still with me. But in my community, any adult could discipline you and your parent did not, you got the trouble, not the adult. But the whole fact that everyone was responsible. You see, the children, one of the, the values in my culture were our children, were our future. And everybody wanted their child to be better than them. And education in Ponta Gorda and in African-American communities, education was the key. And one of the things that I see, I came out for my family. For my family, I came out with my self-identification. I am not defined by anybody else, whatever they think about me. And the way I learned that in my family and the school and community was whatever they think about you, show them who you really are, okay? I started learning self-definition. 
I learned my self-worth. I think you'll hear uh, something from my father about self-worth. I learned self-determination. And in school, the three C's, competency, confidence, and a commitment to excellence. That's what we were taught. And so that's who I am, and those are the values that shaped me. Um, I don't want to go into the future too much because people have to wait about five weeks, but episode five uh, of the essays talks about your father. You just mentioned him. Alonzo Clifton Russell? Yes. Tell us about him. He was just a very easygoing man. Um, One of the things my father did all the time was if somebody died in the community, my father would take off work. And drive them. And I, I didn't know, I guess when I studied later, I guess it was that that um, what you have to do for those who are going transitioning. I think that was his culture. But anyway, my father was a truck driver and a good job for a colored man in, in Marion. And he, again, um, there were some very good colored and white relationships between people. I knew like in the holler and like my father and, and his friend Ferguson. And Fergus, they, you know, they eat together and drink beer together. And Ferguson happened to mention something about his check. Daddy was just, oh, my God, he couldn't believe it. He wasn't upset with Ferguson at all. He went in. That was the weekend. Went in Monday. Ferguson's check was bigger. (laughs) Twice as much. Hmm. Ferguson was white, twice as much. Daddy went in to the office and just said, you know, I, I, we, I do the same work as, you know, and I like to get uh, paid the same. Well, and everybody called my father Lon. Lon, I'm sorry, we can't do that. My father was not a man who cussed, fuss, and did that. He was a very quiet man. He said, okay. He simply walked back to his car, came home. And we never talked about race. I guess because in the hollow, we didn't have to talk about it. And so, but I, when I got home, um, and but we were, we were living in town, and I got home. There was this, you could feel this in the house, but mother was very, very supportive of my father, and I found out the father had left his job. And I have to tell you, I did feel a sense of pride in my father because of understanding why he left the job, but that wasn't the end of it. You know, he was a Russell. He got a job two or three weeks later. He worked as a bartender, worked as a driver. In the 60s, the Job Corps, Blue Ridge Job Corps, hired my father to be a driver for the, the Gibson's all girls. And his his hobby, he loved baseball, Cleveland Indians. And volunteering, he volunteered to coach the girls' softball team. But something else happened there. He was became like a surrogate father. And these were white black girls. It was, you know, you know, the whole mixture. I talked before I wrote that essay I talked to the, because I wanted to see the pictures of of the hall. A year after my father died, the Job Corps, he had gotten awards and stuff, but they named the activity hall Russell Hall for my father. You have no idea, and I'm actually getting a chill now, of how much that meant to me. And I know back when I was just seven when that happened, but how I felt about my father, how much he let people know what his worth was. He he was a man who had worth. And then when they named a hall after my father, you see, if my father had never stood up like a man, he could have been driving a truck for 40 years, but he stood up. He, my father knew who he was. My father was a colored man, but he knew he deserved the same pay. He was not 
a myth. He was not a stereotype. He stood up, but he stood up with dignity as a man. He just said, okay. And because of that, there is a building in Marion, Virginia, named after my colored father, the Alonzo C. Russell Hall, Activity Hall. I'm so proud of him. I, I, you have no idea of how proud I am of my father. Well, I look forward to listening to all of these. I'm proud that we're broadcasting them. Real quick, because I'm basically out of time, what do you hope listeners get from these, learn from these um, you know, insights? I hope that they, in their consciousness, they will develop a new narrative of who we people of African descent who came here, who we really are. For all these years, there's been the stereotype. I want them to know who we truly are. We are truly human. And just to, if you know who we are, you can change your mind about who we are, and we can all work together like they did initially in Ponte Gorda. All right, Dr. Beretta, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Mike, so much. Dr. Beretta is an author and lecturer who has written extensively about social issues related to race, gender, class, power, and culture. She's written numerous books, the most recent being The Promise of Whiteness, Its Past and Its Future, which was published last year. She lives in Punta Gorda and is director of the Blanchard House Museum of African American History and Culture there. It is still unfortunately closed due to damage caused by Hurricane Ian. Her new series, Reflections of a Colored Girl, will debut tomorrow morning and will air every Wednesday in the morning and afternoon for the next several months at least here on WGCU. You can find links to more information about the series and links to my past conversations with Dr. Beretta about her recent books on our website, wgcu.org gcl. Our show today was produced by yours truly. Our director today is Jared Gonzalez. Our social media coordinator is Tara Calligan. For now, thank you for listening. I'm Mike Canary. This is WGCU-FM, Fort Myers 90.1, WMKO Marco Island 91.7 FM, NPR 4 Southwest Florida.